As I mentioned, we're going to be talking about uh, the mission of Christ, the, the, the calling that Christ gives us here in the beginning of the book of Acts. But a- as we um, digest this powerful testimony we've just heard from Reverend Toot, uh, I, I want to ask you to join me as we pray for, for God to speak to us uh, through His Word this morning, uh, through this prayer. I'm going to read this first section and ask you to to read the second part together. This is a a prayer that uh, St. Augustine uh, developed, and I think it's appropriate for us this morning. Look upon us, Lord, and let all the darkness of our souls vanish before the beams of your brightness. Fill us with holy love and open to us the treasures of your wisdom. All our desires known to you, therefore, perfect what you have begun and what your Spirit has awakened us to ask in prayer. Read with me together. We seek your face, turn your face to us, show us your glory. Then shall our longing be satisfied, and our peace shall be perfect. We are in Acts, in the first part of uh, chapter 1. And I have uh, put in the slides verses 1 to 14. But I actually am just going to jump uh, to verse 8, because that's going to be our focus this morning. And this is Jesus giving his disciples their call, their mission. And Jesus says here, I'll I'll start at verse 7. It is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power. When the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. This is God's word. The Nightingale is a recent best-selling novel, and it's a story of two sisters coming of age in France on the eve of World War II and their struggle to survive and resist the German occupation in France. The younger sister, Isabel, spent the war helping hundreds of downed airmen uh, escape France by hiking across the Pyrenees Mountains into Spain. Her sacrifice eventually cost her her life. But decades later, her sister attended a celebration of Isabel's life, a celebration that was attended... Uh, by some of those downed airmen and their families, children and grandchildren. And as I listened to that story, I, I was inspired by the life of Isabel. Here was a woman that gave her life to a cause. She had something to live for, which means she truly had something to die for. And that idea of living for a cause, just as I listened to Reverend Toot, it's that same concept, that same uh, drive. Uh, Victor Frankl, uh, who was a Holocaust survival survivor back uh, decades ago, wrote a book called Man's Search for Meaning. He talks about our universal need for a purpose, for meaning. And he argues that our lack of purpose uh, can cause us to lose the drive to survive, to live, to, to live a full, meaningful life. And one of the problems he talks about is that we tend to live for the wrong thing. We tend to live our lives for things like happiness or success. And 
And Frankel argues that if that's what we're living for, it will always elude us that happiness and success can only be a byproduct of living for something bigger and greater than you. Something our culture, our society here in America, something we desperately need to grab hold of. And the reality is we can look at many different places for our purpose and our meaning. A friend uh, this week forwarded an article to me by a Harvard uh, professor, Stephen Pinker. Uh, He suggests that the supreme law in all of nature is the second law of thermodynamics. You can tell he's a a real nerd, can't you? Uh, Second law of thermodynamics... If you want to know what that is, you think of phrases that we might use in everyday life, ashes to ashes, uh, things fall apart, rust never sleeps, you can't unscramble an egg, Uh, uh, what can go wrong will go wrong. You've heard these phrases before. It speaks to the universe's undeniable and unstoppable movement towards decay and disintegration. Now, Pinkerton is an atheist. He doesn't believe in God, but he suggests that the second law of thermodynamics gives us purpose in life. He describes it this way, that it defines the ultimate purpose of life, mind, and human striving to deploy energy and information to fight back the tide of entropy and carve out refuges of beneficial order. Not quite as inspiring as Isabel's story, right? And yet, here here this man has found purpose and meaning in that idea of fighting back the chaos. That that's where we as human beings can find some reason to live. And whether it's the Nightingale or Frankel or or, uh, Pinker, these are all examples of of that, that need that we have as human beings for meaning and purpose. Something to live for. And that's true for you, whether you're a Christian here today or or whether you're not a Christian. Maybe you don't know what you are. And it's true for you whether you're aware of it or not. Some of you are going through life not even aware that this is a, a basic need that you have. Isabel was fighting for France's freedom. Reverend Tude is, is fighting for the communities and people of Sudan and South Sudan. And maybe for you, maybe your purpose is found in your career. Maybe you're an attorney fighting for justice for those who are oppressed. Maybe you're a teacher who believes everyone deserves a good education. These are all powerful and significant pursuits. But as Christians, I want want you to hear this morning that all of these pursuits related to your career or maybe to your pursuit to be a good parent, that has to come under the ultimate pursuit that Jesus gives us here in Acts chapter 1. That there is a primary pursuit that is a call for all of us as Christians, and that all of our other pursuits, they must align and conform to this pursuit and goal and meaning and mission that Jesus gives us here. That's what Acts 1, 8 shows us. One commentator said that this verse is the key to understanding the entire book of Acts. That this verse summarizes the whole book and it should summarize our whole lives as Christians. You'll be my witnesses. Now, this is such a challenging message for us. Uh, It's challenging because 
we, we don't like the idea that we have to conform our, our cause, our mission in life to something else. We, we want Jesus to be our friend. We want Jesus to be our helper. We in American culture think that Jesus finds his joy in helping us accomplish our dreams. We are encouraged to look deep within and discover our heart's desires, and then we pray for Jesus to fulfill that. But how often are we asked to consider that maybe Jesus has already given us our ultimate purpose in life and that any secondary dream or, or, or mission that we might have must conform to that ultimate mission that Jesus has given us as his followers. Let me read this verse again. I'm going to read the whole verse. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. According to Luke's account, these were Jesus' last words on earth. That means they must ring in our ears and haunt us. That means when we walk out of this room, this building today, these words should follow us and they should nip at our ankles. They should annoy us throughout the week. It should be like a song that we may not like, but we can't help but sing along with. Love Shack is one of those songs for me. I don't know about you. By the B-52s. I hate that song, but whenever it comes on, I'm singing it the rest of the day. And in a similar way, this mission that Jesus gives us, we may not like it. But if we call ourselves Christians, we are called to sing that song. We are called to live that song. And if you're not, you have to look in the mirror and honestly ask, am, am, am I an imposter? Am I claiming something that isn't a reality in my life? George Whitfield was an 18th century evangelist who regularly got people in Edinburgh out of bed at 5 a.m. to listen to his preaching. And one man was on the way to the church, and he met David Hume, the philosopher and skeptic, on the way. And he was surprised to see Hume on his way to hear Whitfield. And he asked him, he said, I thought you didn't believe in the gospel. And Hume replied, I do not, but he does. And how many of our friends and neighbors and coworkers would say that about us? You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Jesus gives his disciples this expansive, impossible mission. Here in the book of Acts, the whole book goes on to reveal how that mission was being fulfilled in their lives. In chapters 1 through 7, we see how the apostles were witnesses of Jesus in Jerusalem. Then in chapters 8 through 11, as you read, you see their witness spread in all Judea and Samaria. And then as you look at chapters 12 to 28, the witness moves out to the ends of the earth through Paul's missionaries' journeys all over the Mediterranean region. We hear Jesus' words here, and we have to realize that they weren't true only for those men standing with him in that moment before he ascended 
to heaven. These words were true for us. For every man, woman, and child who calls themselves a follower of Christ. His words should bleed into every nook and cranny of our lives. I've used this quote by Abraham Kuyper recently, the 20th century theologian and politician, that every square inch in the whole domain of our human existence, Christ cries that it's His, it belongs to Him. And so when we read Acts chapter 1, verse 8, we are confronted with this. And as I think about this verse, and I try to translate what we're being challenged with here, I see it this way. I see that my purpose in life is to be a witness of Jesus Christ every day, every place, in every way, with everyone. I'll read that again. Our purpose in life is to be a witness of Jesus Christ every day, every place, in every way, with everyone. Now that is an impossible task. That is paralyzing if we take it seriously. And that is what's so comforting about Jesus' words in this verse is that he starts off with these Thankfully, these words about the Holy Spirit, he says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. Jesus knows the magnitude of his mission that he's given us. He knows we're not fit to accomplish it without the Holy Spirit. He comes to live within us. He comes in power, which enables us to live the life he's calling us to live. What's, what's incredible to consider as you read the book of Acts and as we're going to go through the book of Acts in the months ahead is, is that the author, Luke, was also the author of, of, of the Gospel of Luke. And, and some people who have read the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts, sometimes people will, will divide the two books, uh, kind of label them this way. They'll say, okay, the Gospel of Luke is about the life of Jesus and the, and the a book of Acts is about the life of the church. Uh, but probably a, a better way to think about it is, is that the Gospel of Luke is about Jesus' ministry on earth and the book of Acts is about Jesus' ministry from heaven. And one commentator put it this way, that the book of Acts should be called this, the continuing words and deeds of Jesus by His Spirit through His apostles. And I would argue that today the words and deeds of Jesus continue by the Spirit through you and through me. He's continuing to do his work. He's never stopped. It's through his spirit that has power to change lives. Now let me, think, let me speak for a moment to the parents in the room. I, I want you to begin to apply this to your parenting. And for you to begin to see the integral role that you play as you raise your kids... You, you are preparing them for this mission. Now, parents like to focus so much time on preparing their kids for college, uh, preparing their kids to be a, a star athlete, preparing their kids for life out of the home so that they can make a lot of money. You know, these are the things that we prepare our kids for. 
How much time do you spend thinking about how are you preparing your kids to fulfill this mission that Jesus has given them? Jim Elliott, the famous missionary, liked to refer to Psalm 127. It talks about kids as, an, as arrows. And his whole point was, what is an arrow for? An arrow is to be shot. An arrow is not to be kept safe in its quiver. An arrow goes. And our kids are to be sent on mission. To be witnesses for Jesus Christ. That's what we're preparing our kids for. That's what Jesus' mission is for us. Now why? Is it just to make a bunch of Christians? Is it just so more people can get into the church and become religious? No, because in Jesus is where true life is found. That is throughout the scriptures. That if you want life in all its fullness, if you want life as is truly meant to be lived, it can only be found in Jesus Christ. And that is why He came, and that is why He died, and that is why we are sent on that mission, to be witnesses to that reality, that life can only truly be lived in Jesus. If that is not a powerful story, if that, is not, if that doesn't compel you, I don't know what else will. That is why Jesus has given us this calling. But how do we do it? How can we fulfill it? And what does it mean to be a witness for Jesus? Well, one way to think about it is to imagine what does a witness do in the courtroom? I know this photo is kind of a staged example, <laughs> a little humorous. But what is the witness doing on the witness stand? He's pointing. That's as simple as I can make it. That is what Jesus is calling us to. We are pointers not to ourselves, not to King's Church, but to Jesus. We, we are witnesses to Him. We testify to who Jesus is. We testify to what Jesus has done. But I want you to see that it's more than just pointing to who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. We are not neutral or objective witnesses here. We should be people who have been transformed by this reality. And so that it isn't simply who Jesus is. We are witnesses to who Jesus is for me. That that is who I am a witness for. And I am a witness for what Jesus has done for me. And you are to be a witness for what Jesus has done for you. So it's more than just testifying to the fact that, that Jesus is God in the flesh or that Jesus died and was raised from the dead to restore all creation. That's one type of testimony. But what Jesus is calling you to is to be a person who has been changed by that news, that that has made a transformation in your life that you want to put on display and to show and tell other people about. That He is not just the Son of God, but He is your God. And He is not just Lord, He is your Lord. And He has not just given hope to the world, He has given you hope. That is what it is to be a witness. That is what it is to point to Christ. Who is Jesus to you? Can you articulate that? What has Jesus done for you? 
Have you experienced it? And when we think about what it looks like to be a witness, we, we tend to kind of categorize it in two ways. We think about our actions and our words. When you think about your actions, uh, sometimes we like to focus on our actions because I know some of you are afraid to actually speak to people. <laughs> and uh, sometimes you're afraid that people might ask you hard questions when it comes to your faith. And you don't want to put, be put in a spot where you, you don't know how to answer a tough question and so you, you focus on your actions and you, you want to live a good life. And, and actually, your deeds can be a powerful testimony. Sir Henry Stanley was a 19th century journalist and explorer. Maybe you know the story. He searched throughout Central Africa for the famous missionary David Livingston. And after spending some time with Livingston, Stanley said this, If I had been with him any longer, I would have been compelled to be a Christian. And he never spoke to me about it at all. What a wonderful example of what our actions, the power of our lives, and the testimony that, I, that can speak to people. And people can come to faith through that. And God uses that. And, and we would all agree that, that uh, words without deeds are dead. However, let's consider for a moment, is the reverse true as well when it comes to the gospel? Could, what, are, what are deeds without words? I heard one pastor give the following example. He said, let's say you have a neighbor and you want to witness to him using your actions. So you greet him over the garden fence and, and you invite him to dinner and you show him all sorts of hospitality. And you explain to him that you're a Christian, but you don't want to shove the gospel down his throat. So you just leave it at that. And then you notice his garden could use a bit of work, so you offer your lawnmower, and he accepts, and eventually, uh, through repeated use, he breaks it. Of course, you don't you know, complain, you don't ask him to replace it. You replace it yourself, and you continue to offer it to him, and he continues to use it whenever he needs it. You help whenever you can. And all these things, you seek to display unconditional kindness towards your neighbor, to love him as you would want to be loved, and then your neighbor dies. Now, what actions ha have you preached to him? What sermon has your deeds proclaimed to your neighbor? Well, this pastor argues that they've only preached that Christians are good people who do good things for their neighbor, that a Christian is nice and kind and morally upright, that that's what it means to be a Christian. You see, you've, you've preached a self-righteous, self-justifying sermon for, full of, of, of a moral tale of what it means to be a good person, and that's what life is all about. You haven't preached the gospel. You know, we were invited last night over to uh, our neighbor's house, our kid's uh, have been playing together and their kids go to the same school as our kids. And, and we were there with another family that we know. They're Christians. Um, I'm Christians. Uh, this family we were visiting is Catholic. And as we're getting to know the other dad, uh, so I'm a pastor, right? He finds out I'm a pastor. The other friend is a Christian. He, he makes a comment. He says, oh, I didn't know we were going to have a room full of holy people. You know, and, and unfortunately... I didn't have a good comeback. Uh, I kind of just mumbled something and 
went on to the next topic. But if I had it to do over again, you know what I would have said? This is what I would have said. I would have said, you know, James, the more and the longer I'm a Christian, the more unholy I realize I am. And the more selfish I realize I am. And the more often I notice that I don't really love my wife or my kids or my friends very well. And yet God still loves me. You know, that's the kind of testimony I think Jesus is calling us to. You know, actions and words. Actions and words. There's a reason the gospel must be preached. Because it's so counterintuitive to what we think it means to be human and to be in a relationship with God. Jesus asks us to take a risk. And he promises to be with us in that. I'll close with this story. Chris Pratt, I don't know if you know him, he's one of the more famous actors right now. He's interviewed this week in Vanity Fair and he's talking about his life and and the interviewer spent some time with him at his home. And, and Pratt was talking about how at one point when he was young, uh, he was homeless, living in a van in Hawaii on the beach and waiting tables at a Bubba Gum Shrimp restaurant, kind of floating through life. And uh, he, he talked about how one day he and his friends, at the time they're all about 20 years old, they asked someone else to, to buy them beer. So they were hanging outside of the store and this guy named Henry came over and, and he recognized something about Chris Pratt that needed to be saved. And he asked him what he was doing that night. And Pratt said, you know, my friend's inside buying alcohol for me and my buddies. And, and so Henry said, so you're going to go party? And Chris was like, yeah. And his friend said, drink and do drugs, meet girls. And Chris said, well, I hope so. And uh, he goes on to say, you know, that should have made me nervous, but it didn't. And Pratt said, he asked Henry, he said, why are you asking? And Henry said, you know, Jesus told me to talk to you. And at that moment, I was like, I have to go with this guy. And so Henry took Chris to church. And over the next few days, uh, he came back to his friends and he told him that he was going to change his life. He was going to give his life to Christ. And Jesus used Henry in, in Chris's life. And Jesus can use you to change a life. And so I'm going to ask, as we have a few minutes here, um, I've got some, a little sheet of paper some note, where you can write some notes um, or in your phone. I want to spend a few moments. Would you reflect with me? As you think about your life, I think I have uh, two questions, maybe a, a final slide here. Um, I want you to ask that question. What are you living for? And be honest. What is the most important thing in your life right now? What is driving you? What is getting you out of bed? And be honest with yourself. And, and, and maybe write some of the, your reflections down. And then uh, consider this. Jesus, give me your vision for my life. What would that look like? How, how might that change how you're viewing your life right now? And so we're going to spend a few moments. The band can come up, and, and as we sit uh, for a few moments, then I'll, then I'll close this with prayer.